Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in June 2018, a dozen young soccer players and their coach became trapped inside the Tom Long Cave in northern Thailand as a sudden monsoon swept into the region and inundated the underground passages. The world watched, transfixed, for weeks as rescuers located the boys, brought them supplies, and engineered a way to bring them to safety. Cave diver Rick Stanton led the effort, and he joins us to talk about the rescue, the rarefied world of underwater cave diving, and his new book, Aquanaut. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In 2018, the world was gripped as it waited to learn the fate of 12 boys and their soccer coach who'd become trapped in a cave in northern Thailand by monsoon rains. On the 10th day of their disappearance, when some were beginning to give up hope, two British cave divers found them on a muddy ledge. They shared a video clip of the extraordinary moment of seeing them all alive. Thank you. Thank you. How, how many of you? Thirteen. Brilliant. One of the divers was Rick Stanton, who has written about the Tom Long Cave Rescue and his lifelong obsession with cave diving in his new book, Aquanaut. Rick Stanton joins us now. Welcome to Forum. Thank you, Mina. Good morning. Good morning to you. And take us to that moment of seeing the boys for the first time. You and fellow diver John Valanthan had tried unsuccessfully a few times before then to find them. And I understand almost turned around on this dive. So what what made you keep going? Uh, well, simply because we could. What you have to remember that when, as we were swimming upstream in that cave against the current, couldn't see anything, and of course not knowing if any of those children were alive, or nor where they were. So it was quite quite an incredible moment when uh, you know we surfaced and then heard voices and then saw lights and then they walked down. Later in the tape of that moment, you can be heard saying "believe" a couple of times that, out loud. Why did that, you say that? That that's actually John. So a lot of people think it's it's my voice our voices and our mannerisms and method of talk are very similar so it's john that says how many of you yes 
But did you uh, say believe? Was that you saying believe? Oh, that's also John. That's John saying it, talking to himself. You you heard me in the background. He was busy with the camera. You hear me in the background saying incredulously, they're all alive because I was able to count them as they sort of, they weren't sort of poised in front of us. They had to walk down a slope and come around a corner that I was able to count as they approached and you know, when I got to 13, what a, what an incredible moment that was. How uh, did it, So incredible that John, John actually said to himself, believe, believe. And I was, and I was in, just as incredulous with what John had said. And I was looking at him, this is real. This is what's happening in front of us. Yes, I know they were, they were thin and weakened, but, but very strong. You did write in your book, they were 10 days without food. I couldn't imagine the scope of their hunger. How did the boys uh, stay alive? Can you talk a little bit about the incredible strength and endurance? Well, I mean, everybody's seen that video, and that's really how it was. And prior to get, prior to, we knew they were there, but prior to that sort of meeting, and we were wondering what we were going to encounter. Would they jump upon us? Would they, would they seize our equipment or whatever? But they were incredibly calm. And I think that's the... I say that they played a huge passive role in their own survival by being calm and tough. And I guess, that, you know, these are hill tribe kids who haven't got a lot of possessions or material wealth, but, you know, will seem to be quite happy sitting there and sort of the whole culture is a bit of, you know, fate. So, they, you know, almost resigned to their fate, not necessarily thinking they were going to die, but just waiting for something to happen, waiting patiently and calmly. Can you talk about the coach, Eck? I understand he had been leading them in meditations as well. I'm not able to comment on that because I'm not, I I can't verify that or not. So I'm not able to, sorry, I'm not able to talk about that. Oh, that's okay. Um, And, you mentioned that the boys, they made what you describe as the, quote, unusual decision to venture further into the cave once they saw the exit flooded instead of staying put. Why would that have been an unusual decision in your view? Uh, so flooding in caves is a, is a, one of the major causes of accidents amongst very experienced cavers or spelunkers, as you say, in America. Uh, year in, year out, people get caught and the results are not always so uh, uh, happy as it, as in this one. But if they had stayed, it would have been quite reasonable to, for them to not be able to find their way out and, and then f- sit there and wait for rescue. That would be the, the obvious thing that many people would have done. But if they had have done that, the water would have come up more and trapped them in position. And and I'm sure eventually, a few days later, they would have probably drowned. So it was very counterintuitive to penetrate further into the cave against the current that was causing the problem to find this area of high ground. But that I believe that 100% saved their lives, that, that very crucial mm. decision. You know, even after finding them, you and John thought you might be the only ones to see them alive. Why did that thought go through your head so quickly? 
because it had only just stopped raining maybe 36, 48, 36 hours earlier. We hadn't got very reliable forecasts. It was expected to have more rain. If there'd been another torrential downpour of um, the early onset monsoon, the current would have come up so strong that, that we would not have been able to progress upstream, even though we had laid those all-important guidelines to navigate to the children on subsequent trips, the current would have been too fierce to, to even pull yourself against the line. So it, it really just depended on the rain holding off at that moment. Mm. If it had have rained, that, that no one else could have progressed up, up there. We're talking with Rick Stanton, a cave diver who led the 2018 rescue of 12 young soccer players and their coach from a flooded cave in northern Thailand. And Rick, what I really enjoyed was this description that you had in Aquanaut, where you imagine what the boys experienced as they scrambled through the cave. Initially, they were going there in part to celebrate one of the players' um, birthdays, and you were thinking about them kind of, there are sections of it that are quite low where they probably had to crawl on their hands and knees or, or even on their stomachs. And this is all, of course, when it's dry. Can yes. you talk a little bit about how different the experience was for you in a cave that was flooded? I mean, you were talking about conditions and visibility that were so poor that the water was thick with silt. Yes, I mean, firstly, I would like to explore a lot of people I read say, how did the boys get into that situation in the first place? Why were they there? I think the answer surely is that they were just teenage boys having an adventure. That, and if boys can't go off and have an adventure, what, you know, that, I think that's a very sorry state of affairs. So they just went in there for fun. Um, there was very little water. They might have got wet feet and you know, wet knees when they were crawling, but that was about it. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't a difficult experience for them. And as I write, write in my book, it was a fun adventure, larking around and progressing upstream. However, by the time we got there, the current was fierce. You very hard to swim against. You really had to. In fact, you couldn't really swim against the current. You had to pull along the floor, dig, dig your fingers into the sand to get purchased, and then pull yourself along to the to the extent that our fingernails were ripped and hands were torn, or pulling along the wall. You couldn't just swim as you might imagine a scuba diver swimming in the sea looking at fish. So we really were having to 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 fight for every every foot we progressed upstream, and of course it, we were blind. You maybe sometimes you might be able to see six inches in front of your face. At one point where the inlet came in, you might have been able to see four or five feet, but that was only very briefly. But most of the time, imagine the passage. I don't know, fifteen feet wide, fifteen feet high in places, but you can only see a foot. Mm-hmm. And it's complicated. It wasn't, I see lots of descriptions describing the cave as a labyrinth. It isn't a labyrinth, but it's not one uniform tunnel. So you have to be, but this is our experience. This is our experience in exploring caves where no one has been, there's no map uh, uh, in these very challenging conditions. Right, which is also partly why the Thai Navy SEALs, who were the first to be called in to try to rescue the boys, 
had such a difficult time trying to navigate these conditions. And in fact, as we know, there was that terrible tragedy shortly after you'd found the boys of one of the Thai divers, um, Saman Gunan, who's aiding um, the effort by trying to replace oxygen tanks, because I understand that oxygen was quite low in the cave. Can you talk about the contributions of the Thai Navy SEALs and, and what they what they were willing to do despite their lack of experience? What they were willing to do was quite frankly unbelievable and unbelievably brave. There were no um, cave rescue organisations in Thailand or in much of Asia um, and clearly fire service or, or other you know, ambulance people aren't trained for that sort of thing. So they, the Thai Navy SEALs, were tasked with a a situation which of which they had no experience whatsoever. You know, I presume they dive in warm water that's clear. So this was very much outside their experience. And why would it be? Why, no, there's no fighting force in the world that would have experience in cave diving. There's, there's absolutely no need for that. So they were they were taking and cave diving is seen as one of the most challenging forms of diving. So they were taking on one of the most challenging um, facets of diving with no prior experience. So incredibly, incredibly brave. Rick Stanton was one of the divers who co-led the rescue of 12 young soccer players and their coach from Tomlong Cave in Thailand. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What would you like to ask Rick Stanton? Were you following the rescue in 2018? What impressions have stayed with you? Have you yourself ever been involved in a rescue? You can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. We'll have more with Rick Stanton, who's written a new book, Aquanaut, A Life Beneath the Surface, The Inside Story of the Thai Cave Rescue. See you after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rick Stanton, a cave diver who led the 2018 rescue of 12 young soccer players and their coach in northern Thailand when they became trapped in a cave by monsoon waters. He describes the rescue, his love of cave diving, and more in his new book, Aquanaut. Stanton is also a retired firefighter as well. If you have questions for him, call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can share your comments on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. And this listener tweets, this was one of the most courageous acts I've seen. I've done scuba all over the world. But caves are a different realm, especially that cave. Um, your book and also a documentary that came out last fall um, describe how only a small group of people do cave diving as a hobby. Can you talk about how you came to be called to the scene? Because I heard that it just came down to really some incredible coincidences. Well, yeah, yeah that's true, Mina. I, don't, I wouldn't say we're the only people that do this sort of this this genre of cave diving of course there's lots of cave diving in florida and mexico that's warm water and clear but what we really do i i don't even consider myself a diver i don't have any diving qualifications i consult i call myself an underwater pothole an underwater caver an underwater spelunker but really uh, you know we just happen to use diving equipment to further our aims of exploring caves underwater but to go to your question it really was that that piqued my interest I was an 18 year old boy doing my um, preparing to do my exams before going to university and a program came on the television UK television about cave diving of which I had no real knowledge that it even existed <clears throat> I'd grown up watching Jacques Cousteau on the telly uh, I was aware of sort of climbing, I'd been hill walking, I was aware of caves, but I hadn't really uh, identified that cave diving was even a thing. And this programme just, um, I was just transfixed by the programme and realised there and then, aged 18, that's exactly what I wanted to do. And I feel quite fortunate that I found a passion in my life that that relatively young age that followed me right through till sort of late 50s really and you had to teach yourself most of what you know about cave diving and you say that's because you had no choice <laughs> so why was that well i'm not i'm not a very good person um and the documentary explores this with uh, organized activities and structured learning <laughs> so um you know, and I didn't have the money to go on courses. And back then, in the very early 80s, they weren't so uh, available, certainly in, in Great Britain. So, yes, it was, it was more by trial and error. Um, and the lessons, it's, you know, it's a very slow way to learn, but the lessons are very hard won and, and very deeply ingrained. So, you know, I say if you take a lot of very small incremental steps over a very long period, you'll still go a long way. And that, I think, really, I, you know, I'd identify that was my learning method. Yes, there there was a moment in the documentary, I think is when you say he doesn't play well with others. But but there was also another funny moment. And of course, this documentary is The Rescue by Chai 
Passarelli and Jimmy Chin. Um, there's another funny moment when another diver describes meeting you and talks about how you're wearing a, a dry suit that looks like it's 50 years old with a harness that's like sticky taped on with a side mount rebreather. <laughs> so you hand make some of your equipment? Uh, yes, I do. I, I, that, that, that diver was, in fact, Dr. Richard Harris, who was the anesthesiologist I brought in. And I met him in a cave in New Zealand in 2007. Uh, so, yes, I, I always find if you get a, a piece of shop bought equipment, it's sort of fit for purpose, but you always want to modify it. So I'm either modifying it or just starting from scratch to make exactly, I'm a bit um, fussy and I know exactly what I want. And so the only way to really get that is to make that yourself <laughs> to the extent that I even, you know, taught myself to machine and I've got a lathe and a mill in my house for, for making my own equipment. Uh, equipment that, well, I guess it makes sense that well, you would be so careful with it, but equipment that really is, has to support. be perfect. <laughs> yes. Yeah, support equipment, exactly. I um, mean, that's an incredible thing. You must really trust your own skill set. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, I, I, you know, I just see it as another facet of the activity that I'm doing. It's just, it's not just sticking your head in a cave. It's, it's, you know, the planning, the logistics. I mean, that's one of the main things, and that's really why we've been successful and why the rescue was successful. We're very, um, uh, our logistical planning is, is second to none. But also, you know, the machining of the gear and the modifying the gear, and we had to again, do that and think very hard about the equipment we were going to use on the boys you know, to bring them out in Thailand. So all those things, all those elements, all factored together to make the rescue successful. Yes, they all did factor together. It was interesting, though, um, and there were, you know, again, moments where you have these incredibly fit and trained Thai Navy SEALs wondering why they can't navigate a cave the way that you, I think at the time you were 57 years old with, you know, homemade gear and, you know, tall and lean, lean. You, you write about how you're from, from Coventry and you describe it as, you know, not a tourist destination, just all these ways that, yeah. that you are very unlikely uh, to be the person who can perform this incredible, well, incredible feat. And for anyone else that would think that, I mean, the, the, the whole purpose of reading the writing the book was to explain the backstory. <clears throat> I mean, everyone's seen the video of the rescue, but they might think, why was a 57-year-old man from uh, a, a city in England <clears throat> suddenly flown out to Thailand for this task? And the, and the book say you know explains all the backstory of how we gained the experience where we gained the experience where things went wrong of course there were other rescues and recoveries we were involved in that got us the name uh, and all those all those things again gave us the experience to to be successful in thailand and and actually to, to answer a previous question which i failed to answer the the british guy who was on the scene at the start of the rescue I had never met him or even heard of him, but he had heard of myself and John. And when he realised that the Thai Navy SEALs lacked that experience of caves that we had, 
he put our names forward to a Thai government minister, the Minister of the Interior and the Minister of Tourism and Sport. And they, uh, with an incredible amount of foresight, realised that he was talking sense and brought us in into the to the mission. And that was this in, uh, hugely fortunate and uh, uh, event that sort of led to the success. We're talking with Rick Stanton, who helped rescue 12 young soccer players and their coach from a flooded cave in northern Thailand in 2018. And I'm sure those of you who are following the rescue were left with strong impressions. If you were, feel free to share those. Or if you have questions for Rick Stanton, feel free to share those as well. 866-733-6786. Our email address, forum at kqed.org, or get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. David writes, while obviously unrelated, firefighting and cave diving do seem to have similarities, very low visibility environments, the amount of time is very limited, and they're both incredibly dangerous situations. I'd like to hear your guest's thoughts on the comparison. Uh, well, he, he is, of course, correct. Um, but what, what I do say is that I was a cave diver before I joined the fire service, I main, maintained myself as an active cave diver during my, my years in the fire service, 25 years I served. Uh, and then when I left the fire service and retired again, I continued with the cave diving. So it's cave diving is the common thing. And fire service was just, a, a, in a way, a way to, to accommodate that. But of course, there are many similarities. But the, 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 the key, cru, crucial difference, in fact, between sort of, fire service rescues and the Thailand rescue. And this really does um, stand, make the Thailand rescue stand out. Normally when you rescue someone, you're taking them from a place of extreme danger and bringing them to safety. What the situation was in Thailand, we were taking some group of people from a place of relative safety and, and then having to bring them through some of the most challenging and dangerous sort of environment that you could ever imagine, namely underwater in a flooded tunnel right. to get them to safety. And that's, that's the key difference. Yes. You know, when, when you discovered them, you talked about how people were behaving like they'd been rescued, that the boys and the coach had been rescued. I think the assumption being that you could get them out the same way you and your diving partner, John had got to them. And, and then of course, you had found four men early on, you had found four men who had gone and had been stranded for about 24 hours, some rescue workers who'd gotten stranded, who only had to go a fraction of the distance. And when you tried to help them go under, they had panicked, um, which also makes sense if you've never been underwater and, underwater and tried to breathe in that way. So, so you did have to come up with a plan. You're racing against time. There are more monsoon rains in the forecast and the oxygen levels are low in there. Can you talk about the idea to anesthetize them? And you mentioned Richard Harris earlier. Can you just talk about how that all played out when you mentioned the idea to him? Yeah, so um, we, you know, one of the, there's lots of things in the book, in my book that aren't really mentioned elsewhere until the documentaries come out but one of them of course is the rescue of those four pump workers early on and that sort of gave us a name on site in one of the first days we were there and they only had to be underwater 30 40 seconds 
and they completely panic. So it was very unlikely that you could bring somebody out like those boys for two and a half, two and a half hours underwater and for them to, doesn't matter how stoic and composed they were when we found them, but to do that for two and a half hours yes. in an almost alien environment, I challenge anyone to, to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, we have had been involved in other cave rescues. We've been involved in planning, thinking exercises. <clears throat> and this was always a, a thought in my mind, but this was clearly the time to talk to someone about sedating the children. Uh, and Dr. Richard Harris, the anaesthetist from Australia, who I'd met on dive with on numerous occasions. I actually know five or six cave diving anesthesiologists, but Richard Harris was the larger-than-life character that I thought would actually, um, not that I'd be able to persuade him, but was, would have the strength of character to come on board with this, this ridiculous plan, which was to sedate the boys underwater and therefore make them into what I dispassionately called uh, inert subjects, bring them out, inert packages. Mm. Uh, he was very much against it. He, you know, there's no, uh, no one, as far as we know, had ever been sedated underwater before. And of course, these were far from clinical conditions. You know, they weren't being monitored. They didn't, you know, they weren't intubated. They were, yes. There was no medical facilities for resuscitation. It, it, but, of course, and all that is, of course, true. Yes, but we actually have a, a clip of Richard Harris describing how much he was against this idea of sedating the kids from the rescue documentary. Let's just give it a quick listen. I could think of a hundred ways a child would die very quickly. Uh, for example, to maintain your airway, you know, you need to keep their chin up. At any time during the dive, the child's airway could obstruct. They would asphyxiate. Their sinuses could fill up with blood. They could drown in their own saliva. Honestly, I, I could talk for an hour about the ways that I thought these kids could die. How were you able to convince him to do it? Or, or did you need to convince him? Well, I, well, I, I totally needed to convince him. In fact, I mean, I, whilst I say I came up with the plan, it was Harry and his whole career that was on the line, really. So he offered to come over. He clearly needed to see the predicament the boys were in and to, you know, just convince himself that there was no other way that these, these boys would come out. You know, the Thai government was talking about waiting for the rains to end, drilling a tunnel, training the boys to dive, but none of these were really viable. So he had to see for himself. And, and once he did, he realised that that was, you know, there were, it was the best of a string of very, very bad options. You, you talk about the great personal risk that he faced, but we understand now that, that you did as well. I mean, if this went south, there was a chance uh, that you would have to face the Thai, the Thai judicial system. I just, there was even a plan for you to get to the UK embassy in case things didn't go well. This is true. The, you know, but, and, and, you know, the, we, we were supported by the British embassy as Harry was supported by the Australian embassy. Mm -hmm. 
but also, I think culturally, it's not, you know, Thailand is not a blame culture. It's not like the West. So, you know, we had morally had to do what we had to do. But I did feel, you know, in America, I believe you have the Good Samaritan law, whereas if you think you're doing the best, then you're exonerated from, from prosecution. I think that exists here. Uh, and really, that's what that's what we were doing. You mentioned that um, to sedate them was to turn them into basically like inert subjects. But what was it like when you were carrying a child through those elements to try to get them out of the cave? So, so the um, describing them as inert packages was all great until you actually suddenly processed one and then you started to swim out and you realised that you had the life of a child in your arm, cradling it. They were, they were unconscious, like a, almost like a rag doll, underwater, breathing underwater, and that was your responsibility. There was four divers, essentially, on each day bringing one boy out, and that boy, you helped to prepare him, dress him, put the equipment on him, were present was present when Harry, Dr. Richard Harris sedated him, and then he was your responsibility. And, and you know, I don't surely you don't need to emphasise the, the the responsibility and the concentration of that of just that two and a half hour swim with that person in your in your control uh, when you're leading them out. You can't see anything. You're listening for their breathing. You're making sure you don't bump the mask off their face, which would the crucial thing in, in cave diving. It might sound a, a very dangerous activity, but there's always redundancy. So if you've, you know, you'd have more than one light, more than one breathing source. But the boys only had one mask, and the integrity of that seal on their face was the most crucial thing. So it was absolutely right. paramount that, that that you didn't dislodge that mask. You didn't bump them at all through those through those tight corners, <laughs> otherwise they would drown. Incredible. We're talking with Rick Stanton, and we'll talk with you, our listeners, more of you, our listeners as well, with your questions and thoughts about what you're hearing Rick Stanton describe right after the break. 866-733-6786 is the number to join the conversation. You can email us forum at kqed.org or reach us on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Rick Stanton, an underwater spelunker who led the 2018 rescue of 12 young soccer players and their coach from a cave in northern Thailand that had been flooded. He describes the rescue and his passion for cave diving in his new book, Aquanaut. And you, our listeners, can join with your questions for Rick Stanton, your thoughts on the rescue in 2018, or if you have any similar experiences of cave diving or spelunking or Anything that Stan is saying resonates with you, 866-733-6786, the number. And let me go to caller Bob in Kuyama Valley. Hi, Bob. Hello, how are you? Well, what's on your mind? Well, I, I was uh, one of the many fascinated and uh, concerned, you know, listeners in 2018. Um, I have been, uh, I don't want to get into my personal circumstance, but I've been in difficult situations and I've, you know, faced that. I might not make this moment. Um, and I've been with others uh, or talked to others who weren't with me and their own experiences. So I'm fascinated and I'd like some uh, input from your guest about the psychological um, connections or any perceived differences between attitude in the part of the rescued person um, and how that may or may not come into this particular case with the, with the, uh, Sedatives, I'm fascinated, but it may, it may have less of an imp- impact. But any any ideas about the attitude uh, of a person in those predicaments? I'm just fascinated by that attitude. You, um, you mean who connection. ends up being rescued? Who ends up surviving? Yeah, hopefully ends up being rescued. I'm sure some of them don't end up being rescued. But um, any insights your your guest has about you know attitude as a factor? In survivability, ah. now, it's not a hundred percent. You may or may you may have a bad attitude and make it. You know, you may yes. have a great attitude and not make it. But um, just any insights uh, he might have on that. I see, attitudes of survivability. Rick Stanton, any thoughts? Oh, hi, Bob. So, uh, well, I think one of the main things relating to Thailand was you have to recall they were a football team, so they were a very tight knit group of people with before the rescue, and clearly that gelled into an even tighter grip, uh, group during the rescue or during the time they were trapped. And then they're still all good friends and uh, you know a tight peer group since then. So I think that played a huge part. They were you know able to offer each other support. But as I touched on, when we you know when we found them, they were very stoic. But also I think there's other cultural reasons why they you know they're. Uh, respectful to their elders and they trusted our judgment and they you know when dr richard harris presented the plan which he himself has said what he thought was ridiculous and it wasn't going to be a hundred percent successful when he presented that to them they accepted it they accepted that there was no other way and that that was the best chance they were going to have now other other you know, if that happened in other parts of the world, 
people or even the parents might have said, you're not doing that to our, our children. So I think very much in the case of Thailand, cultural uh, aspects played a huge part. The boys were down there, their coach uh, down there from June 23rd to July 10th in 2018. So that was a total of 18 days. And I remember you describing how you did meet some of the parents right after because they wanted to thank you, even though you had sort of tried to avoid them. And I was really struck, even after you describe everything that you went through, the pressure, the stakes, you write that you realized when you met the parents that after all of this, that this whole thing had been harder on them. What made yeah. you realize that? So, I mean, the, the parents had been on site most of the time. I couldn't really avoid them. You, you had to walk past them. But I didn't really engage or make eye contact with them. But imagine the stress, I mean, of not knowing whether your child's going to survive for 18 days. Now, uh, we talked about the similarities with firefighting. Now, the, I say the bread of Bread and butter of a firefighting is a house fire and going to rescue people. And that's all hugely dramatic. But it's normally over within five or ten minutes. You've gone in, rescued someone. There's not the huge suspense that this is. 18 days of suspense, not knowing whether your child... First of all, ten days of suspense, not knowing if your child is even alive or dead. And then, a, you know, the following another week of waiting for them to come out and would they get out that that's a huge amount of time which again is very unusual in rescue circumstances well ravi tweets love the documentary the rescue and also moving was how the thai people came out to support as well and the bonus of the documentary was that it did not mention elon musk and his mini sub idea um, there, there were some incredible contributions from the community. There were articles about people who stayed for days on site to cook for you and other rescuers, rice farmers who sacrificed fields while tending to the rescuers and volunteering, and so on. Um, you write that after the rescue, a journalist asked you if you considered yourself a hero. And... In the book, you say that you said no, that we were just using a very, very unique skill set and were able to give back to the community. So that's what we did. But you also say that you wished you had spoken more on this point. What more would you have liked to say? Like, how would you have elaborated? Yeah, I'm not. So, you know, we, uh, I don't know where you picked up that I wish I'd spoken more on that, but uh, it's, I just think we were presented with a situation where we were the best placed people possibly in the world uh, with our experience. If, you know, I mean, the book sort of demonstrates, hopefully, that the whole life it, it led to that point. Of course, why wouldn't you do it? So that, you know, a hero to me is someone who makes a snap decision to do something, whereas really this my whole life was spent planning for something that I didn't know what that was going to happen, yet it happened to be this. So, you know, I cave diving, especially for us, is all very much about being in control. And the whole thing was being in control and thinking of every eventuality that could happen to ourselves and the boys. So it, it's a matter of hugely methodical and comprehensive planning. So 
now I don't see that. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm clearly uncomfortable with the hero life. <laughs> it is pretty amazing, though, to think about these skills that, that are very unique, right? Very specific yeah. to the type of cave diving that you, you do. Right. That they would come in handy in this incredibly significant way. And, and in the documentary, you talk about this rescue giving a sense of legitimacy to this. And there's even a line in your book, and again, I'm, I'm nervous about quoting from it in case, maybe you're not remembering what I'm referring to, but you did say in the book, I began to feel that maybe I hadn't wasted yes. my life. And that's a really strong thing to say. Had you felt that, that you, that yeah, all of this was potentially I, a waste? I, I don't know about waste, but I certainly got to a point a few years before the rescue where I was, I sort of got a bit jaded with the whole, everything I was doing in cave diving. It was all becoming a bit too much effort. The dives were, it's not just going for an hour long dive. The dive might, or you might be going into a cave for two days. The preparation and planning took the best part of a year and it was just all becoming too much. And I sort of fell out of love with it really. And coincidentally, I did some very simple and enjoyable cave diving on two occasions, the month before Thailand, which, again, how fortuitous is that? And, and sort of realised that it was good and, and got, you know, practised my skills just in time for the rescue. But, but now that's entirely, entirely true. I'd sort of fallen out of love with it uh, and thinking it did rather control my life rather too much in, you know, in in preference to anything else normal that normal people might do. But um, this has certainly helped helped reset my mindset to thinking, well, you know, it wasn't all wasted. Well, this listener tweets, I remember crying when the soccer team was rescued. The rescuers were relentless in their efforts to save the soccer players and their coach. How do you process or or do you feel like you're still processing this event i mean the enormous pressure the incredibly high stakes how does one go about doing that like i wondered as i was reading the book and watching the documentary about about whether you sort of dream underwater you know like you you relive these moments and dreams so i, I that that person makes a it was relentless you know that week i swam 15 kilometers what's that uh, 10, six, about nine miles underwater just rescuing the boys in zero visibility uh, you know that's you know in uncertain conditions with uncertain outcomes so it was relentless physical and mental toll but the thing that this story has got fortuitously is an incredible feel-good factor. All the boys and their coach survived. So I'm not certain how much processing mm. uh, there is to be done. Now, you know, I think in the book I describe how for the first few months uh, I say that I'd used up all my thinking power for that year or and I couldn't yes. make if you'd ask me whether I want tea or coffee I don't know I can't make I can't make a decision I've used up all my thinking power and relied on others to help and I, and I would certainly have 
not flashbacks to the rescue for a month or two, but I certainly had these uh, vivid dreams where there was something that was impossible to do, and it could have been, it wasn't relating to a cave, it could have been the, you know, an exam or something ridiculous, and everyone was looking to me, and I didn't know the answer. Uh, and after a few, uh, and I can't be specific because I've forgotten them now, but it, but it, there were certainly many of them, and then they, they faded out. But but I think the bottom line is, I mean, have I, you know, of course there's publicity ongoing for the film, a documentary and the book, and then the Hollywood film will be coming out hopefully in Easter. Right. So it's not something that I can forget, but but it, it's worth remembering that it is an incredible feel-good um, event. Rick Sand's book is Aquanaut, A Life Beneath the Surface, The Inside Story of the Thai Cave Rescue. And we're talking with Rick Stanton, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Another thing that you write about that you can't forget is about a close friend of yours named Ian who died while you were on a cave diving trip together. Would you tell us a little bit about him and, and what happened? Uh, yeah, well, we were... I, I met him on a on a caving, just an ordinary caving trip to Peru way back in the sort of mid to uh, 80s. And we got on very well and we had a similar mindset about caving and exploring. He was a few years younger than me. And we forged a really incredible caving partnership, exploring caves uh, in England where in Wales, <coughs> where we lived. Uh, and, you know, when you, when you do these incredible explorations... Just like I had have done with John, who was with me when we found the boys, you can't help but to have an incredibly tight bond, and that's the bond I had with Ian. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, whilst he was exploring a, a deep cave in Mexico and diving at the bottom of it, I was present in the cave at the time, but not diving. Uh, he had a, a, a medical event uh, because he was uh, he'd recently been diagnosed as diabetic and unfortunately passed out, but he was underwater when he passed out. And so that didn't end well. Um, mm. but that was very traumatic. You know, his body was recovered. And then we spent four or five days hauling the, the, the body out of the cave, up the, up the rope. It was almost effectively a mile underground, you know, rappelling down ropes. Or, or then also the reverse to go back up and haul his body back out. So it was all very hands-on and very traumatic. One thing that struck you is that at his funeral, people consoled themselves by saying at least he died doing what he loved. But that was something that you, you're not sure you totally agree with as, as a consolation. <laughs> That's, that's, that's correct. I mean, so I've had a lot of comments from people who have read the book and said, you know, they, they find it funny. I say I'd rather die doing something I didn't like, and then I'd get uh, uh, an excuse for not doing it, like, I don't know, processing your taxes or, or something something horrendous just to, so you don't have to do it. I, I find it a bit of a, a cliche, oh, he died doing something he loved. I'm sure he would have loved to carry on doing the things he loved uh, for the rest of his life, natural life, and not end it prematurely doing what he loved. Do you feel like you have 
I don't know, rediscovered your love of cave diving? I, I know. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think I think so. But uh, but then, of course, um, COVID seems to have intervened, and so we've had many <laughs> many trips cancelled, and there, that we you know we had some plans for this year, and they're all being uncertainly uncertain or, or cancelled as 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 we talk. So. And, and of course, I'm not getting any younger, and uh, I'm 60. So who knows? But uh, yes, yeah, certainly, as a, it's not something I can escape from, and it's not something I want to escape from now. Yeah, you do say in the film that your dangerous hobby can make relationships difficult. What do you mean by that? What have you learned in that in that way? Well, because, I mean, I'm I'm uh, so focused. And I was so involved in cave diving to such an extent, and it and it requires a huge amount of focus that I didn't really have much energy for other things in life. But one of them, of course, being uh, relationships, and you know, so I, I, that hasn't necessarily gone so well. I mean, I've had that, that one very long term relationship, and we're, and I'm still exceptionally good friends with that person. And, and we live close, but generally, my my attention has generally been elsewhere. <laughs> well, this listener writes: the Tive Cave Rescue it was the last time the world came together to support and celebrate a remarkable act of human resourcefulness, courage, and selflessness. Thank you. And another listener writes: your guest's humility is his superpower. What he and the team did was an act of humanity. Humanity at its humble best in these times of division. Thank you for your collective example of selflessness. Have you heard people talk about this as now one of the rare moments of the world coming together in, in a really positive way? Very much so, yes. But I just, for me, it just seems like the obvious thing that we should have done. It doesn't. It wasn't. Didn't even need questioning from us. Of course, we'd get involved. If you can see something that needs doing for the better of others, and you can do it, and you're the best placed person to do it, why wouldn't you? That would be my question. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Um, well, I share my listeners' thanks for what you did. And also, thank you for, for telling us all about it in your book, Aquanaut. We've been talking with Rick Stanton, a cave diver. Yes, thank you. Really such a pleasure to speak with you. Um, and thank you to listeners for your questions and comments about his brave rescue of these 12 young soccer players and their coach from the cave in northern Thailand. And my thanks to Susan Britton for producing today's segment. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.